Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. U-turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. The earth has a skin, and that skin has diseases. One of its diseases is called man. Here's a quote from Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher. I thought this was an appropriate quote for our discussion today, as our guest, as an ex-investment banker and current board director and chairman, encourages us all to really think about global trade, the circular economy, the enormous opportunity in the transition from a high-carbon to low-carbon society, and ultimately about our planet Earth. Our guest today is Jeff Brunsden, chairman of Sims Metal Management, the world's leading publicly listed metal recycler. Jeff is also chairman of APN Funds Management Limited and MetLife Insurance Limited. He was previously managing director and head of investment banking of Merrill Lynch Australia Limited. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. I'm your host, Greg Robinson, managing partner of Blenheim Partners, the number one research-led executive search and board advisory firm. In this episode, Jeff addresses the generational initiatives and global sustainability, sharing insights and tremendous optimism in the technological undertakings in the hydrogen economies, the rapid advancement in robotics, the cultural mind shift in regards to reusable versus recycling, and a future that is abundant with opportunity. As a chairman, he brings to the fore the values, passion, and sense of purpose required in the public domain, stressing the need for some longer-term thinking and imagination supported by investment and action. So sit back and enjoy putting the planet first. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me, Greg. You've been traveling for three weeks. Where's your, uh, where's your journey taken you? Well, I've been in the US and then uh, had a uh, Sims board meeting over there. Our, uh, our uh, largest region is the east coast of the US and uh, management, uh, the C-suite management team's based there. And then um, we uh, had a couple of site visits. You might have uh, seen Scott Morrison visited yeah. our Brooklyn recycling facility. Yeah. And then uh, I've been in Japan. I went to Osaka for the Australia-Japan Business Corporation Committee meeting. And then um, my colleagues at Mitsui were ki- uh, kind enough to organise some uh, site visits, steel mills and waste-to-energy plants, uh, which, was, uh, which was very interesting. So what was your uh, glimpse to the world on um, the US? Look, I've got to say, well, the global global perspective, I've never seen uh, global trade more challenging, to be frank. Really? Um, I think um, the uh, the US economy itself is quite strong. You know, labor, labor's tight, um, particularly on the West Coast. 
and we've seen uh, wage rates going up, real, wages in real real terms going up, which and, has been and that's the first time for a long time. And that's the first time for a long time. There's a lot of talk about um, the uh, the inverted yield curve at the moment. Probably too much focus on uh, on the uh, the inverted yield curve, and that's generally uh, led to recessions when you've seen that format, but. Equally, that's been driven by uh, uh, short-term interest rates going up, um, whereas what we're uh, what we're seeing at uh, at the moment is uh, long-term rates coming down. Um, but still, uh, if you're hiding at the short end, you're not paying very high interest rates. So, so business was was on the up. But where was society in general in the US? When Australians go and visit the US, they generally go to LA, San Francisco, New York, or a really expensive ski resort. That's not America. Yeah, right. Um, I think there's still uh, still in America a lot of pockets of uh, people that are feeling still quite disenfranchised mm-hmm. and um, quite uh, quite uh, alienated from the decision making that occurs in those uh, those key key areas. I mean most Americans could never dream of going to Jackson Hole let alone being part of that uh, that dialogue. So um, I think that uh, notwithstanding the strength in the US economy um, you're seeing uh, policy in in the US now going much more towards a, a, an isolationist nationalistic approach. Yeah. And uh, for a company like Sims which relies on strong global trade flows, yep. that's anathema. And uh, in, that, in that environment, we really, really struggle. And I think uh, you're seeing it right across uh, uh, all the hard commodities at the moment. It's becoming more and more challenging. So for the benefits of the audience, mm. you want to talk us through what actually is SIMS? Uh, SIMS is uh, an Australian company. It was founded 102 years ago in Newtown in Sydney. Um, Albert G. Sims started uh, started collecting uh, actually uh, glass scrap uh, uh, bottles in his uh, bicycle, but soon realised there was a lot more money in scrap, and uh, that business uh, that business has grown to uh, now uh, process about nine million tonnes a year of uh, metallic content. Uh, we've got two hundred facilities uh, in over twenty countries around the world. Uh, we process four hundred and fifty tonnes of electronics every year. And we've got about $5 billion in sales. So to the layman out there, is that scrap metal or what does it actually yeah, mean? Well, well, it's, uh, it's, we, we, we think about it in terms of ferrous, ferrous scrap, which goes to uh, electric steel mills. And those, uh, those electric steel mills tend to make products that are associated with uh, uh, construction and engineering. Uh, long products rather than blast furnaces, which tend to make the higher quality steel, so the hot roll coil um, that goes into 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 high end manufacturing. Although we're seeing more and more now uh, scrap being part of the feed for those uh, blast furnace uh, blast furnace operations. So um, scraps in uh, scraps in high demand. Uh, there are electric steel mills all around the world. It's a lot cheaper to put in an electric mill than build a blast furnace. Right. And the uh, notwithstanding the fact that an electric mill generally draws electricity from a coal fired power station, um, the carbon footprint of recycling steel is a lot lower than creating uh, virgin steel from uh, iron ore and coking coal. What about trade in steel? I guess our business collects uh, scrap, um, uh, end-of-life consumer products, demolition materials and so on in first world countries, processes it and exports it to third world countries where you generally find those steel mills located. So recently we've been uh, focusing more and more on upgrading uh, our processing 
to produce uh, on the non-ferrous side, principally copper and aluminium, a more refined product that's capable of going straight to smelters. So we're uh, looking to capture more margin in that way through that capital investment and upgrading of those uh, those processing facilities. Jeff, wasn't I reading something that's a few challenges of China there? Some some months back. So China, uh, China, uh, along now with a lot of other Southeast Asian countries, has put their hands up and said, "We don't want any more of your rubbish." And um, traditionally, the scrap industry has um, uh, sold to China a mixed metal product, um, and technically, it's referred to absorber. It's got aluminium and then heavy uh, heavy metals such as um, brass, zinc even copper, copper wire, and PCB, printed circuit boards, right. fraction. And uh, um, China said, well, you know, once we sort that, that's sort of is rubbish. We don't want that. So China, along with a lot of other countries, is putting uh, a, a more restrictive uh, framework around the import of those secondary uh, products for further sorting and then smelting in their own country because of the waste element of that. So uh, what's happening is uh, we're having to deal with that processing um, at our existing facilities where we're collecting the scrap and that high quality material then tends to go to the end consumer rather than uh, an intermediary and uh, a lot of our focus is getting uh, to more and more refined product. So you talked about uh, the environment and sustainability. What's the, uh, the, the investment like in regards to technology then? So um, we find uh, every decade um, there's uh, basically fairly significant step forward in sortation technology. So, and that's not just in the metallic area. Sims has the uh, recycling contract for uh, uh, the New York City. So we collect uh, all the uh, glass, the paper and plastic in New York City. And in our Brooklyn facility, we, uh, we sort that again using technology and uh, uh, we sort it into various grades of plastics, which have different markets, uh, various grades of paper and, uh, and glass. And uh, the uh, commodity value of that plastic is very much determined by where the price of oil is and where the price of gas is. So at the moment, for example, in North yeah. America, uh, there's a lot of cheap gas available and there are a lot of uh, manufacturers coming on stream to take advantage of that plastic. So once you factor in the costs of collection and processing, um, that's a very, very competitive market. So what we're faced with in Australia uh, is what every developed country faces, and that is there's if you want to preserve the environment, if you want to put the planet first, there's a cost to collecting, processing and recycling the plastic that's that's every day in our lives. So um, our New York City recycling contract, for example, uh, relies on um, New York City sharing the downside and the upside okay. of that commodity, the commodity price. Um, we currently send um, out of our processing facilities which is the residual component of, of the automobiles and, and domestic appliances that we, uh, we process, about 1.3 million tonnes to landfill every year. Okay. We're uh, looking at using um, plasma technology to convert that waste effectively to energy. So um, um, we can either then uh, generate electricity or we can produce hydrogen to go into the, the hydrogen economy. And as you know... Um, uh, there's very significant investment occurring now in Australia to um, take brown coal, for example, and yes. convert it to hydrogen and uh, to Japan. 
and um, take the carbon, the CO2 element, and uh, sequester it into the the old Bass Strait oil wells. So, uh, you know, the, the carbon capture storage is real. And uh, we want to be part of that economy, that future. So, um, when I look at uh, look at Australian government policy, for example, yeah. around uh, around energy and uh, and uh, and waste, we're really struggling as an economy to see how we can f- quickly and effectively transition from high carbon to low carbon. Well, I was going to ask you: Have you found the policy yet? Um, well, look, I think I think. Sims is a company with, with with a global footprint, and everywhere we operate, our competitors are investing in low carbon technology. They are, are they? so we just have to go ahead, and that's why we're committed to reducing our carbon footprint and maintaining that investment, regardless of of Australian government policy, because we've got to keep ourselves globally competitive. And the the, the challenge for uh, governments in Australia is to manage that transition. That transition's inevitable. Yeah. Um, and uh, as we saw with the auto industry, um, when you pull the roller shutter down on, on, on an industry, it's a painful dislocation. And you have a generation of people who've been trained in one industry, but um, you can't readily find jobs to transition into the new economy. So I think from a uh, community perspective, from a social perspective, uh, my personal perspective is that I'd like to see that transition occur progressively over time um, and not be a sharp shock in 10 or 15 years' time where a whole generation of people that are are focused on industries that are high carbon, carbon intensive, suddenly don't have jobs. Are you having access to the appropriate ministers? Is the dialogue there? Yeah, we actually have found that um, the government's very receptive to our perspectives. The fact that the Prime Minister would come to our facility in yes. Brooklyn to see what we're doing in the United States, I think is a very, very positive sign that, that, that in Australia today, governments at both the federal and the state level are, uh, are showing a lot of interest in ways of dealing with waste and how do we migrate in uh, the Australian economy into the circular, global circular economy. But why are the Americans using an Australian company? Well, um, the history of our company is that uh, we've grown by acquisition. Yep. And uh, the reality is that one of the companies we acquired in North America was already in the process of tendering for that. Yeah, right. And we saw that as a really interesting and exciting opportunity. And in fact, our strategy is to continue to um, uh, look for opportunities in North America to participate in the sort of uh, recycling management uh, opportunities that uh, Brooklyn really, really best illustrates. Easier on paper, it is a federation of states. Are the states run very differently? Um, Look, the policy frameworks from state to state are very, very different. For example, we have another business in Australia, LMS, Landfill Management Services. uh, It's a joint venture. and in that joint venture, we manage uh, the methane that's, that's, that's released from landfill, either by flaring it or by burning it in uh, engines and generating electricity. So that's a business that uh, we see there's opportunity to go overseas, but there's a very limited number of US jurisdictions where right. the policy framework is such that that can be really made to work. So um, we've got to see a number of components 
uh, in the market before we'll dive into something like that. Is the issue in broad terms regulation catching up to business? I think I think it's it's a combination of regulation catching up to business, but also um, business seeing the opportunities to operate effectively in the regulatory environment that's established. Now, um, the political persuasion of a, of a government in a particular state, you know, the, the political perspective of the governor in a particular state will very much drive that regulatory framework. But um, as we look at it on a state-by-state basis in the United States, what we see is basically a regulatory framework that's reasonably consistent with the expectations of the population in that in that particular state. So um, generally speaking, people in California are committed to recycling, yeah. they're committed to you know finding ways of reducing their personal carbon footprint and yes. supporting businesses there. Um, whereas if uh, you go to other states, which I won't name, yeah. uh, they they you know just want to rip coal out of the ground, and you know the the from them climate change is a myth, you know, perpetuated by people with vested interests that are against theirs. And what would you take on Japan? Japan is heavily invested in the the new economy. Um, they see um, their future as being inextricably linked to um, technologies around low carbon and zero carbon technologies. So the big name trading houses are all investing an enormous amount of money in technologies around, you know, the hydrogen economy. Okay. Um, around technology that's 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 really going to revolutionise the way we we uh, live our lives. So um, um, if you think about the Royal Commission to Aged Care at the moment, yeah. you, you go to Japan and there's an enormous amount of technology now being developed to support uh, individuals as they age so that you are in a population that's aging, you're not relying on younger people to provide that support, you're looking for technological solutions. So, uh, you know, um, robotic walking frames, um, the, um, the companionship computers that, you know, we call them robots, but, you know, they're really there to behave like uh, human or uh, animal companions, things like that that... Uh, um, are really designed uh, to um, um, enrich uh, the life of the elderly. Where is Europe on the on the whole scale in regards to the carbon footprint? Um, well, uh, as you uh, as you know, Germany, for example, uh, produces more electricity every day from renewable uh, sources than it does from uh, carbon-based sources. Um, there have been some days in uh, Germany and, in fact, even in the United Kingdom where all the power that's been consumed has been produced from renewable uh, resources. Now, that's an exceptional day with exceptional wind, and we all know the issues of, um, of, of actually storing renewable energy so it's available when the sun doesn't shine or the wind doesn't blow. But Europe now, generally speaking, Spain, Germany, even parts of Italy, for example, it's now more cost competitive to install uh, renewable new capacity than it is to uh, install either coal or um, or gas-fired generation. So how does someone like yourself who's had a banking background become a chair of Sims Metal? Well, that's... Uh, and that, why is there an interest? So my career in investment banking you know, was often... 
involve me spending time in boardrooms, talking to boards and dealing with uh, chairman and C-suite executives. So um, the boardroom was a place that that, that, that that was my milieu, for want of a better word. Yep. And um, uh, when I uh, started to contemplate career retirement from investment banking, um, I was invited to join a board and by the people I'd work with. And, uh, and uh, it just seemed a very natural thing to continue to provide the sorts of perspectives and advice that uh, admittedly in a professional sense were much more transaction oriented. But uh, I had uh, I had some great mentors, um, you know, John Study, for example, yes. who uh, was chair of Mercantile Mutual and invited me onto that board. Um, spent a lot of time helping me transition into being a non-executive director. And I think that transition, now that I'm a chair, from an executive role into an NED role can be quite challenging for some people who can't, uh, who, who haven't had the experience of knowing where the line between being a, a, an NED is and being a CEO or a, or a C-suite executive is. And um, um, another, uh, another mentor of mine once said to me, uh, if you see a director who's spending a lot more time doing executive stuff than they should, you know, either you've got the wrong director or you've got the wrong CEO. And I think that sometimes boards do find themselves immersed in issues that are the province of management um, rather than the province of uh, the, the NED role. And often it's because the management team is not dealing with the issues of the day as effectively as they should be. Jeff, what was the criteria you were seeking? before making that move onto that first or second, third board? I guess the, the conversation I had initially was uh, came as a bit of a surprise. I didn't expect it. I hadn't really contemplated moving into a, a, a board environment with any great focus. Having said that, it just seemed quite sensible that having uh, led an organisation, having been involved in, at an executive level, having been involved in setting strategy, in executing strategy, in um, coaching management um, to achieve the objectives we set, it did actually seem quite natural then to move into a board environment where those same challenges and those same um, skills were, uh, were, were, were required. So... The advice I now give people who are thinking about having a board career is only ever get involved with a company that you're really passionate about. You believe in the purpose, believe in the company, um, and you, you just want to get up in the morning and get on with it because you do believe that that organisation serves a purpose. So if we come back to Sims, for example, um, Sims' purpose is to create a world without waste and to put the planet first. And that's something at a personal level I really believe is absolutely paramount if we're going to have um, a, a world where our children can have children and, and thrive. And it's international too, isn't it? And it's international. And it's international. I think, I think that um, from my perspective, the world's borders um, uh, from a technology, from a trade, from an information sharing perspective, the borders are going away. Um, and what you're seeing with trade barriers, with information barriers, what you're seeing there is um, uh, dislocation occurring and suboptimal outcomes. And I think ultimately, 
um, the course of economic history proves that it's those economies that are open to the world and seek to leverage their competitive advantage and take uh, take the benefit from economies that have a relative advantage in certain areas being part of that two-way flow. They're the economies that ultimately thrive. So what's the challenges you see for Sims? In terms of the immediate challenge, mm. I think it's the current trade environment, which I was talking about before. Yeah. And as trade flows um, contract, as they potentially will, we uh, we have to we have to adjust our business model to deal with that, and lower volumes means lower profits. Uh, longer term, the big challenge for us is to see a path through to being an integral part of the circular economy. So uh, strategies such as waste to energy, recycling the cloud. In other words, taking these server farms that 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 blossomed three and four years ago and are continuing to grow. Are now coming, you know, that first generation is now becoming obsolete. And a very important part of our business is uh, recycling those server farms. And that's, that's not just chewing stuff up and creating commodities, that's actually uh, cleaning chips and repurposing them and, and marketing them, which we do in uh, conjunction with um, those, those large organisations that run those server farms, as well as being able to deal with the um, big amounts of copper in these, these, these server farms, copper and aluminium, and, and recycle those in the more traditional sense. So that's important, uh, dealing with landfill waste, dealing with municipal recycling, um, and when you ask me about Japan, mm. um, there are a lot of uh, there's a lot of learnings for our organisation in the way the Japanese uh, economy is dealing with the adaptation of technology to take them into the future. And that's the big challenge for our organisation is to actually see those technologies that have application to choose those technologies which will embed us as a critical component of the circular economy and so ensure our future um, as, a, as an organisation. My aspiration is that uh, my grandchildren will see Sims turn 200. Style of leadership and the backgrounds of the individuals who are going to be the future leaders, that's surely going to change based on what you've said. Absolutely. That uh, change in style is, is, is fundamental. Our... Um, uh, leaders in our metal recycling business yep. have had to learn to understand, um, scrutinise uh, and adapt technologies to become more efficient and more effective in the way they run their business. But beyond that, we're going to have to have individuals that understand how to integrate new technologies into existing businesses to create new business models. Um, and those people are the people in highest demand. So it's not easy just to say, well, that's the style of person we want and click your fingers and have them in the organisation. It really requires the organisation to, first of all, have a purpose that um, um, is attractive to those sorts of individuals. So they've got to want to be part of it. And in fact, we do have people coming to us, young people coming to us saying, we love your company, we'd love to be part of it. And those people that are self-directed, self-motivated and see the opportunities, uh, they're the people that will provide ultimately provide the leadership into the future as well as those that um, can see the opportunity to adapt new technology, understand it and see how it can apply to our business. So how quick has been the change? We've been working on our current strategy. Uh, we started work about two years ago. 
Okay. It was a process where we engaged the top 75 leaders in our business. We've got about 5,000 people um, globally um, um, in all areas of our business. Um, and it was really out of working with that group of people and we looked at a lot of opportunities, a lot of new technologies and so on that really said we, we want to continue to grow our core metals business but applying technology so that we can get further along the value chain. Um, we've got to deal with our waste, the 1.3 million tonnes of uh, automobile shredder residue I mentioned before, we call it ASR. Okay. We've got to find a way of dealing with that because we can't uh, just keep putting it into landfill. I mean, morally you can't, no. uh, but economically you can't either. I mean, in uh, Australia now, uh, a lot of landfills over $200 a tonne. In the US, you know, it's still around sort of $40, $50 a tonne. So okay. there's a big disparity there. But here and in the UK, the ability just to throw stuff into the land is becoming more and more expen more and more prohibitive. Yeah. And we, uh, we just have to find another way of dealing with it. And we've got to find an, an economic way. So if we can abate our landfill costs, we can abate the transport costs of moving it to landfill. If we can, uh, uh, turn it into an energy source as we can, either electricity or hydrogen. Um, they're all economic, direct economic benefits. So, um, having an organization, uh, that is um, socially responsible is absolutely essential, but you can't be socially uh, responsible and be uneconomic. Jeff, how do you create that atmosphere? Because I, I, I imagine, uh, you know, you hear a Sims metal, some truck driver driving around, tats down his arms, left, right and centre, picking up the garbage, sorting it through. But you're talking through a different degree. It doesn't mean that person's changed, but the intellectually or the challenge and the way that people are thinking has, has certainly changed. So- can you sort of share a bit about that? Because it's not an easy journey. No, it's not an easy journey, but it, it's it's one that um, you, you know if we're uh, if we're determined not to end up as Kodak ended up, um, we've got to see the future, and we have to imagine how our organisation will fit into that future. So that requires leaders with vision, appointing the right CEO who can appoint the right C-suite that actually. Uh, has that uh, hunger to understand the patterns of the future and think and understand how our organisation will fit into that future is absolutely fundamental. Um, but more than that, you have to have individuals who can share that vision in a way that motivates and inspires, but also shows clarity of that path. How do we get there? And hopefully over the course of this conversation, you've got a sense of Absolutely. how our leadership team see that we'll get our organisation uh, into that future in a way that, uh, as I say, embeds us in the circular economy and makes us an, an essential part of that economy. And how practical or how up-to-date is the board? Ah, well, I think a board, a board um, that has the ability to see that future is absolutely fundamental. Yeah, everyone um, talks. Everyone talks about that. Yeah. So what's 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 the role of the board, right? So we've spent a lot of time listening to the Royal Commission, and the word that comes out of that for the board's governance and culture. Um, so you can't get away from that. The board has a responsibility to provide the governance framework and the accountability, um, but the board isn't there to do the day to day job. Uh, having said that, beyond the governance role. 
you should have a group of experienced uh, individuals around that board who can provide different perspectives. We call that diversity. Um, You need a board who will challenge management, challenge management in terms of the way they're dealing with the challenges that we see coming down the track. Um, We talk a lot about risk and risk management, um, and 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 the risk culture of the organisation. A lot of a lot of effective risk management is about seeing the challenges that are coming down the turnpike. So um, risk is not. Uh, you know, we used to bundle risk up with audit, and uh, I think by uh, by separating risk and audit as 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 financial uh, corporations are regulated in Australia, for example, have Mm -hmm. done, produces a much sharper focus on identification of the risks and the culture of organisations. And culture is a word we use a lot in business and we think it's some esoteric thing. All culture means is predictable behaviour and it can be good, bad or indifferent, right? (laughs) (laughs) Calling it what it is, right? Call call it what it is, right? Um, But having those behaviours in an organisation that make me as a frontline executive on a call centre or dealing with a customer or dealing with a complaint make empower me to resolve that, make me accountable for making decisions that will be in the best interests of the organisation, but also be aware of the community expectations. And you know, we talk about the social licence to operate. Yeah. And you know, I, th- I think it is real. I mean, no one wants a factory at the end of their street belching smoke. I mean, yeah. that's one of the one of the reasons we've struggled, you know, to deal with our waste problem, for example. No one wants to burn plastic. I don't want to burn plastic. But no. if you can deal with it in a way that um, doesn't emit dioxins, that, that, that does produce manageable outcomes, if the technology is there, then that's the technology we've got to use. But um, I think that um, having um, individuals that are aware not just of their responsibilities, but giving them the power to call out aberrant behaviour or risk-taking behaviour, unacceptable risk-taking behaviour. Um, a good example, in our business, I mentioned we had approximately 5,000 employees around the world. Every one of those employees is empowered to stop the plant. If there's an unsafe act, if there's something that's going to injure someone, they have the power to stop the plant. And you know when you have people do that, what we do, we go and we make a big thing of that and we say how good was that individual to make that decision, you know, when there was a production schedule because that's we say safety is our first priority. And yet if you don't um, enable that individual to make that decision, if you don't empower that individual and if you don't reward that individual for making that decision, um, you, you know, what message do you send? So um, that, 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 I think, is a good example of how individuals should be empowered um, in organisations uh, at your front line to deal with risk. And safety, you know, is, our, is I, I genuinely believe we will create an organisation that has no injuries. Now, really? You really believe that, do you? I really believe that. Now, okay. people will say, oh, that's a nice aspirational target. No, well, yes, it is aspirational, but yeah. it's going to be real. And, uh, you know, I, I would love as chair of this company before I retire to have a year where there's zero injuries amongst those 5,000 people. How close you got to it? Look, we've made, we made a hell of a lot of progress. Um, um, in the US, we measure injuries in terms of million exposed hours in Australia, it's 100,000 hours, so, you know, there's different measures and so on. But, um, but we have plateaued recently. Um, 
last financial year we had two fatalities and they weigh very, very heavily, not just on me, but the board and the leadership team. Yeah. Um, and, you know, someone said, someone not involved with Sims, you know, when I was sort of feeling very flat, they made the comment, accidents will happen. I said, no, accidents um, happen because someone uh, miscalculated, misjudged, and I don't care whether it's in the workplace or at home, um, every decision that we take has consequence. We all know that. Mm. And part of our thinking has got to be, well, what's the safety consequence of that decision? Um, I renovated my house about three years ago and uh, I was putting the ladders into storage. Ouch. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> you know, I'm 60 years old. What am I doing with, you know, an extension ladder? So I got rid of the ladders. Yeah, right. Um, um, yeah. I was up on mine on the weekend thinking, what am I doing up here? It's a bit scary, actually. Yeah, well, get rid of your ladders. That's... <laughs> That's uh, that's something we've got to uh, we've got to think about. Jeff, speaking of getting rid of your ladders, where do we sit as a nation in managing waste management? That's uh, that's a that's a that's a really good question. You know, in some areas we do really well. Um, in other areas, we uh, we're, we're laggards. Um, my personal perspective is we send far too much to landfill. Still, you know, we should be looking at ways of reducing the amount of packaging wrapping. Uh, you know, product uh, support that we provide at the at the point the consumer makes that purchase decision. I think uh, the supermarkets getting rid of plastic bags is a great example of best in class behaviour. And there are actually a, there's a there's a great little environmental group. Um, they've got a Facebook page if you want to go and look at it called Boomerang Bags. And generally ladies who make bags, they embroider them. And when you go through your checkout at, uh, at your supermarket, um, if you've forgotten to bring your bag, rather than buying another plastic bag, they'll lend you a bag. Is that they'll right? They'll say, take it. Boomerang Bags. It's uh, a great initiative. So if anyone's listening to this podcast and wants to get involved in that project, if they haven't seen it at their local, uh, at their local supermarket, they think it's a great idea. Great, uh, great opportunity to meet and engage with, uh, with people and talk about the environment. So that's a great example of best in class. But- you go into your home and you go into your kid's bedroom, you go into my study, you open the drawer, how many mobile phones have you got there that you'll never use again? You know, two, three. About half a dozen. Yeah, a couple of iPads, you know, yep. all of that. Now, um, Sims uh, in some councils on weekends where they have cleanups will go and have a bin for electronic waste. So we'll take that and we can process it and we can recover the elements, but we can't afford to pay for it. And what we've got to recognise as a community, there is a cost to consumption. There's a cost to recycling because the commodities that we can extract there don't um, cover the cost of collection. So uh, if we wanted to be better at the point of consumption, the consumer would uh, probably have to pay a premium, a bit like a 10-cent deposit on a bottle. Now, yes. we know with bottles, some families are assiduous at collecting their 10 cents. Yes. Other families don't care um, and, and, and it goes into the stream. But I think the evidence is that uh, 10 cent charge is seeing a lot of bottles coming back into uh, um, into the into the uh, recycling stream that otherwise would have been litter or, or, or landfill. Um, so I think that uh, reducing packaging, having a focus on reducing packaging as consumers and individuals making choices 
that are, uh, are low packaging or actually reusable rather than recycle. Remember, the best form of recycling is reuse, um, is important. But also, we don't care about throwing away food. We buy far more food than we need. How often do you, you find you've got to empty your fridge and throw stuff out? Now, there was a point in time that was perfectly good food and should have been, but we, we over-consume. And that goes to landfill, it degrades, it produces methane. Methane's 26 times more toxic than carbon dioxide per tonne in terms of in terms of greenhouse gas effect. Right. So that's why we have got a business that converts methane to carbon dioxide. It'd be better if we didn't have the methane there in the first place and we weren't producing carbon dioxide. And the way to do that is reduce the amount of uh, putrescible waste that goes to landfill. But if we can reduce that, reduce packaging, um, and find then ways of converting what we do have to other sources with low carbon technology, then that starts to move us into best in class. But going back to that earlier point, say I've got my half a dozen mobile phones mm. and winding it back 20 years ago when I first bought that mobile phone, should I be paying a levy up front? I think that's the model that seems to to best work. And when you uh, when you go and buy your new mobile phone, you're motivated to get that levy back to pay for the levy on your next mobile phone. So it sort of just becomes a one-off deposit. Yes. But as you trade up that technology, you get that deposit back. But it's funding the uh, the, the getting that material to point where it can be recycled. Now, you mightn't get the whole of that deposit back because there is a cost to recycling it. Yes. And if you want that product, you've got to be socially responsible yep. and participate in the costs of having that dealt with in a uh, sustainable and uh, uh, socially responsible way. But um, if, you, if you don't have that initial impetus, um, you're going to think, oh, I might need it next week, you know, as I migrate. Well, you never need it next week. You never need it next year. And, you know, 10 years later, you're wondering why you've got all this junk in your drawer. Uh, who's, who's the model that we should look at? Europe's had mandatory recycling uh, compliance schemes for a long, long time. Okay. Um, so um, you, uh, the European, any, any EEC member, Britain won't be, so I don't know what will happen there. But um, that's a great example of dealing with obsolete electronic equipment. We in, in Sims have a, a small business where we do refurbish um, electronic equipment for the original equipment manufacturer who then might retail it in a re-retail it in a third world country um, as a uh, as a lower cost entry point than their new uh, their new models. And how poor is the um, the management of waste in the third world countries? I think the, the third world is starting to wake up for the, to the fact that they've got a very degraded environment, not just because of their own practices, but because of the practices of first world economies of shipping their waste off to them. And I think it's a, uh, it's a great thing that we're seeing these economies now start to uh, um, recognise that. But um, um, it, it, it differs by jurisdiction to jurisdiction. You've talked a lot about... Uh Sims purpose mm. um, and Sims, um, I guess, social responsibility. You mentioned a couple of times. How do you actually demonstrate that? Well, that's a really that's a really good question. We have um, historically been regarded by um, the investment community as being a leading example of a sustainable company, you know, with top ESG ratings. But the rest of the world's 
catching up to us. So we're putting a renewed effort into reporting our carbon pr- footprint. So we're adopting the principles of the Carbon Disclosure Project. Um, so we uh, are in the process of measuring our Scope 1 emissions. Now, Scope 1 emissions are those carbon emissions involved in um, your actual manufacturing, processing, business activities. Uh, scope 2 basically emissions uh, generated uh, from drawing power. So it'll be the coal-fired power station down the road that uh, generates your power. And then scope three emissions are basically associated with, with getting uh, getting your product to market. So for those listening, wh- where is that coming from, Jeff? So um, that, that that's an international accounting standard. Um, and um, being the, followed, but is, is it being it, followed? It, it's, it's being followed more and more, and it's becoming the the gold standard. So uh, we think it's appropriate for our company that is focused on on reducing its carbon footprint to start to measure that, so that over time, as as we're reducing waste to landfill, we re- we'll reduce our carbon emissions. So if we're generating our own electricity from renewable resources that'll re- reduce our uh, our scope two emissions we're not drawing from the grid um, we if, if we start to power our mobile equipment that currently is diesel engined yeah. either with electricity you know, electric motors and batteries or hydrogen um, down the track then that'll further reduce our scope one emissions and then our scope three emissions probably more challenging because uh, sims is a bulk cargo shipper uses um, the, the global shipping network, so, so chartering ships to deliver our product. But having said that, um, the low sulfur standards now, uh, uh, low sulfur fuel standards are being applied. So you're actually seeing the, uh, the bulk shipping fleet being uh, refurbished with low sulfur tanks and low sulfur uh, engines um, to reduce that, uh, that, that, that sulfur emission. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an interrelated equation, but uh, I think that uh, the more companies start to report from you know the inception of their process to the end customer um, the more that uh, will be driven as a as a global economy to look for low carbon um, alternatives to, to current alternatives and it's very similar to actually understanding your supply chain um, where in your supply chain are you potentially exposed to uh, modern slavery issues yeah, right. yeah. all those sorts of things so um, it's not just in carbon that we're focused it's the 17 sustainability goals of uh, the united nations and we look at the applicability of all all of those right down to fresh water you know how do we deal with uh, stormwater and wastewater what are our processes to uh, ensure that we're not polluting the environment um, right through to ensuring that we are working to prevent violence against women yeah, so you know that's the that's the full spectrum, and with a workforce of five thousand people, um, you know we 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 will have statistically individuals that are either subject or involved in domestic violence. Yeah, you know what do we do in those? You know, so um, as a uh, as a as a board and leadership team, we are committed to looking at all those areas and and seeing what we can do to pursue those 17 goals that the UN have said uh, are so important. You touched on earlier the hydrogen economy. Yeah. Mm. So how do you see the opportunity there? If we are, uh, we could produce hydrogen through a waste-to-energy process, for example, 
we could um, start to power our vehicles with hydrogen over time. I don't really have the answer to that, and I'm not going to be glib about it, but um, I do know there's an enormous amount of investment going into preparing the Japanese economy, for example, for, a, for, for to become you know basically a hydrogen-based economy, and uh, they those organisations are the that, that are involved in that are the corporations that you traditionally associate with trading. Um, minerals, you know, hard commodities, right, coal, yeah. iron ore, and so on. Yes. So, this is an example that I, I guess of the comment I was making earlier. You've got to start to migrate to low carbon technologies and do it progressively so that you don't fall off a cliff and have a huge dislocation at a point in time where you realize the rest of the world's passed you by. And what do you think of the resistance in Australia? Um, Look, I, um, I I can I can understand it's a, it's to borrow a phrase uh, it's an inconvenient truth, um, it's disruptive, and um, if uh, if I'm um, unemployed in Gladstone, of course I want a new coal mine there Absolutely. to get a job. You know, yeah. so there's no one else is going to take care of my family other than me. So it's a perfectly natural human response that I want a job. So I do understand that, and as a community. We have to find ways to ensure that that migration to a low-carbon economy is as smooth as possible. How does SIMS future-proof their workforce? Well, that's, uh, that's a real challenge because, as you know, um, we've got uh, a workforce that's quite engaged in what I'd describe as a very traditional e- economic framework. Yeah. And there will be individuals in there that have the motivation and the aptitude to retrain but there'll be a lot of people who don't. And the challenge for us as an employer is to uh, have a path that we can migrate the workforce over time. So um, I don't want to be making people redundant, laying people off because they don't have the skills, but we're not going to stop being a traditional metal processor. You know, that's, that's, that's quite clear. So those traditional jobs will continue to be there, albeit with different technology, um, we're going to use robotics a lot more. So, you know, that creates the opportunity for, for, for a robotics operator as opposed to someone who's in a, in a, in a uh, picking line. Um, but um, it's, a, it's about thinking about how do we progressively reduce the exposure. It's like torch cutting. We want to phase torch cutting out. Now, there are a lot So what does that mean? Well... So you understand oxyacetylene cutting um, on a uh, it, it, you know produces noxious gases. It's dangerous. It's heavy work. It's difficult. Um, but we haven't done it overnight. We've done it progressively around the world, and uh, some of those people have retrained to become crane drivers. And 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 you know sort of and and it sounds uh, crane driving is a pretty technical, challenging job. And it you know requires very very high le- skill levels. So it requires high levels of training. Um, it requires um, um, real awareness of the interaction of the equipment with human beings that are on the ground. So I'm, uh, th- this is not going backwards in terms of skills. Quite the contrary. So it'll never be perfect. Um, as organisations evolve, there will always be those that get left behind and get left behind at points in their career that um, you know don't suit them um, and but um, there's also that opportunity to bring in young people who are the future 
So it's, it's, it's a challenge of doing that in a socially responsible way and ensuring that um, the reward mechanisms, payment mechanisms, the, the, the safety, you know, all those sorts of things, people are left in the best position they can be to deal with the, with the future as they find it. And that's part of being a socially responsible employer is, is, is understanding how that evolution and that progress, uh, that progress works. And nothing's more exciting than attending the retirement of someone that's been with the business 40 or 50 years. And you talk to them and inevitably they tell you about all the jobs they've done, all the different jobs they've done. And they're proud. They're proud to be associated with their company. You strike me as a, um, a very forward-looking chairman how do you take the board forward with you? Uh, you know, you hear the old the study tours, and I've been to Israel, etc. And it's a it's a five minute you know, there and back, and suddenly I'm an expert overnight. How do you, you know? How do you lead as a chair? I guess I guess um, as a chair, you probably I, I would estimate put between three and four times more time into the company than you do as a non-executive director if you're properly engaged. Um, I think it's really, really important that the chair and the chief executive have um, a very close and effective working relationship that you have that ability to challenge the CEO, but equally the CEO has the ability to challenge the chair. So that then says, well, as a chair, what do I want in the board I'm working with? And um, I see boards a little bit like teams. And uh, I've talked to other chairs who don't. They don't see it in that way at all. But I do like to think it as a team, and I like to think we can have a high-performing team. So um, it's, it's a little bit about setting for each director, what are your personal objectives over the next uh, 12 months? And over your tenure as a director in this company, what do you what do you as a director describe as success in terms of your contribution? As a chair, I actually want directors around me that'll challenge me. Now, I don't want to be humiliated publicly. No one does, but uh, I do have directors um, who call me out and challenge me. What are you going to do about this? And I've had I had a great conversation about three years ago with a with a, with a director on one of my boards, um, and uh, it was a it was a female director, and she said, "Jeff, you know this is a problem. You've admitted it's a problem. You haven't told me how you're going to fix it." And I said, "Actually, I don't know how I'm going to fix it. You know, what do you think?" And it's creating that sounding board opportunity to hear other people's ideas as how they deal with issues and problems. But it's also a bit about the dynamic around the board table. And um, at Sims, for example, we have four face-to-face meetings a year, but they go for three days. So um, a large part of um, any board's got to be compliance. But that's a really interesting way you do mm. that. Mm. What made you go down that path as opposed to- Well, we're a global, we're, we're yeah, a global no, business, so we've got directors from Japan, North America, and Australia. Yeah. And, you know, finding a spot where it's convenient uh, for everybody is impossible. So when we schedule those four meetings a year, um, people have to really cut out their diary for a week in order to do three days, right, to be most effective. Um, and But it does give us a great opportunity- to spend time, we have dinners together, we have dinners with management, 
and they're working in the whole time you're really working because you're talking about what's being discussed. And in fact, I've worked out that I have more face-to-face time with my SIMS directors and the leadership team yeah. than I do in companies that have 12 meetings a year. That's what I'm going to ask you about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and, but it's a much more um, intimate event because you're spending so much more time with people. You know, you're staying in the same hotel, um, you're talking about the challenges and – so when you have video conferences or phone conferences, you've actually got a lot of knowledge of the people and who's asking questions, where they come from and so on. So I've found that a really, really effective format um, for great strategic thinking and challenge coming out of the board. And the measure of success is um, does the leadership team see the board as a compliance obligation or a resource? And if you get to the point where the C-suite wants to engage with the board, um, either individually because they've got areas of expertise or collectively around the table, at that point, I think that's when you know you've got a high-performing board. Do you think the emphasis has been a little bit lost in Australia in regards to compliance versus time on the actual business? Look, I know a lot of directors complain about the amount of time they spend on compliance and... uh, um, I think that culture, you know, you know, is 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 your, that word your, again? That word again. The behaviours of the of the of the employees, understanding the employees. If you as a board can be confident, you understand the culture of an organisation. I think you're a long way down the compliance track. Now, it's challenging, right? How do you, as a non-executive director, yeah. really understand the culture? Now. It's about being in a face-to-face situation. So um, in financial services, there are town halls. You know, you get the leadership team together. Um, I think it's great to, as a non-executive director, go and sit in and, and not necessarily have a speaking part. Sometimes it's good for the, for the organisation to hear from the board. But get a sense of the Q&A. How free are the people that are junior in the organisation to ask a question of the CEO at the town hall? You know, get a sense of that dynamic. Um, have you been to the call centre? Have you sat in the call centre for half a day and listened to the calls, the Q&A, what comes up, how the, yeah, those issues are dealt with? What happens when the leadership team presents um, do they come in individually to the board or do they come in collectively? Do they challenge each other, particularly when you've got strategy pieces going on? Just finding ways of testing behaviours, culture, attitude. Um, if you as a board work on being present enough, you, you'll start to see you know, the underlying, the underlying themes and trends there. And I think if, if you are uncomfortable about the culture then that's, you know, that's a, a red light going off. Um, but if you find that's a culture that, that, that you can be part of and be proud of, well, I think, you know, the compliance issues start to, to take care of themselves in a sense. Not that, not that you can forget about it, but, um, but it's, it's, it's about putting those reports that, you know, are, are, are analytical into a sort of human context. So, if you have a complaints register that comes to the board, how long does it take for a complaint to be resolved? 
does it ever come back? In other words, is it resolved and then suddenly the same complaint comes back? Do you have a whistleblower line? How many times do you, the calls go into the whistleblower line? You know, if you never have a call to the uh, whistleblower line, does it mean you've got a perfect culture? Probably not. Um, it probably means the whistleblower line isn't effective. Mm. Um, if you have lots of calls going to the whistleblower, you know that's a different issue, right? So, yeah. you know, there are all these, all these, uh, all these objective measures we can look at um, to do our compliance job. But unless you uh, marry that to the interaction with the employees and a sense of what's going on in the organisation, then uh, you know you run the risk of missing the real challenge that's coming down the road. To succeed, you've got to be open and willing to accept change. And with that, make some pretty big calls. You're the chair. What's the biggest calls you've been making? Look, I think, um, as I said before, we're in a very challenged global economy at the moment. Um, and we, uh, we have to um, make sure the business, the company's positioned to deal with the volatility, the changes, the, uh, the constraints that that economy uh, that economy puts on us, um, we need to uh, in every organisation I'm associated with, we need to use data much more effectively. Um, we've in every organisation I'm associated with, there are big decisions being made or about to be made or need to be made around investments in systems, data analytics. Um, at the same time, community expectations are growing on the way we'll manage that data. What use will put that data to? And again, you've got to see that through the, 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 the purpose framework. But I think if we don't deal with the challenge of managing and interpreting and using data more effectively, we'll be left behind. And I don't care what organisation you're talking about there. Um, it's absolutely fundamental these days. Um, regulatory, in, which I, I think is, is, is somewhat different to compliance, but regulatory yep. intervention um, is becoming much more driven by community expectations being vocalised on social media yeah. and so on. And regulation is imposed... Um, by people, just developed and imposed by people, often without the benefit of the business experience and understanding the practicalities of business. Um, and often regulatory impost has perverse effects. Um, I, um, you know, am smiling at the moment because we've got the ACCC looking at the bank's behaviour and not passing on. 100% of the interest rate cuts. Yeah, yeah. But as a self-funded retiree, I don't want them to pass on yeah. 100. So you've got this, you know, sort of push and pull yeah. in the economy. You've got one group of people that are that are borrowers that, yeah. that want the lowest possible interest rate yeah, they can. You've got another group that are retirees that are relying on their investment income for their survival. They want the highest interest rate possible. So, you know, you, you, you do have that tension. And sometimes regulation doesn't allow organisations to balance that, that, that tension as effectively as possible. How worrying is the impact of social media? Because as you say, quite often it is, it's based on limited fact. Um, well, uh, particularly in your type yeah, of industry. Yeah, yeah. The, look, social, the, the issue about social media is, is every survey I've read, every a, a analysis says regardless of 
truth or, 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 or fact, um, people believe what they see on social media. You know, that it, it, it's not questioned. And I think that's a really big challenge for our society that we've stopped paying for investigative journalism. Um, you know, the, the, the revenues aren't there in old media anymore to support, um, you, you know, the old style investigative journalists that traditionally gave the voice to the disaffected. Mm. And um, there's a myriad of examples of social media misrepresenting facts that drive behaviour on the basis that, that, that what's there is fact. And I think that... Um, Social media, uh, by um, continuing to present aberrant behaviour, uh, it normalises it. So the more and more we get exposed to it, it's a, it's a bit like a kid stealing milk bottle money. You know, there's an analogy from years and years ago. The first time he does it, you know, it's terribly frightening. But after he's, you know, been doing it habitually, he just thinks it's a normal part of his pocket money, you know, sort of budget. So... Um, you know, we do need to be very, very careful of, as a society that we um, reinforce the bright, the, the, you know, the moral bright lines and we don't allow that, that, that area around that moral bright line to become shaded. And I think, I think that's what uh, the, the Banking Royal Commission um, highlighted was that there were organisations that had allowed behaviours to become um, entrenched mm. and normalised. And people said, well, that's the way we'd always done it, rather than saying, actually, should we be treating that person in that way, you know, sort of. And, and I think that um, uh, while everything in the Royal Commission was self-disclosed by those organisations, yep. um, I, uh, I think that uh, in that short, sharp um, exposure, it did, uh, it did make a lot of people think about, well, I have been doing it, I can do it, it's strictly legal, um, but, you know, should I do it? And I think that that's, that's a question we as corporations have to ask more frequently. And there's also the positive side of social media. Um, you had the Prime Minister visit you. Mm. Uh, what was the story behind that? Um, look, I think, um, I think the Environment Minister Susan Lay was very, very keen to uh, see what we were doing. We met with her, piqued her interest. And uh, I, I, as I understand it, um, she suggested the Prime Minister if it could be fitted into that trip that he go and have a look at it. And um, it was really pleasing to see um, our leader, our leaders, so interested and so engaged. And genuinely and, engaged? And genuinely engaged, genuinely engaged. And uh, it gives me a great deal of optimism and enthusiasm about uh, the capacity of the Australian uh, community to actually get behind uh, recycling initiatives and the circular economy. Jeff, you're generally very optimistic. As you sit here today, what future do you see for your company and what aspirations should we have as Australians? Look, I think um, the, 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 we talk about Australia's unbroken growth you know, over the last you know, 40 years and um, that's that's a record that I know people talk about definitions and and so on, but we should be very proud of that. And a lot of that uh, a lot of that growth, admittedly, has come from natural resource endowment, but it's actually come from people. It's come because we've grown the population of this country. And I'm concerned at the moment that we're fearful 
of growing the population of this country. So my my vision for the future is that we we reinvigorate our view of investment in infrastructure for the future. So Australia shouldn't have a population of 28 million people. It should have a population of 50 million people. And we're talking about water scarcity and dams and so on, but there are, there, there, there are technological solutions. You see um, ex- great examples of um, countries that have far less water than we are, and yet they can grow their population. Israel's a great example of that. Um, so if we combine sensible infrastructure to grow the economy, and for example, I'm a great believer in high-speed rail. I don't think we need to connect Sydney and Melbourne with high-speed rail because we've got a great uh, great plane service that, that that's very, very effective. But from Melbourne to Bendigo or from Sydney to Cessnock, you could actually grow very, very large communities there who can come to Melbourne CBD or come to Sydney CBD for their jobs, but they can actually commute um, in a reasonable time, probably um, a lot shorter time than commuting from Penrith to the CBD, to be quite frank. Um, So if we were prepared to make those sorts of investments, we were prepared to open our doors, we were prepared to use technology to make the environment sustainable in terms of, of livability and so on, we could see very, very strong levels of growth. And I know there are arguments about aggregate GDP growth versus per capita growth, but at the end of the day, a growing economy, we all do well and we create jobs. So my vision for this country is over the next 20 years, we create projects that facilitate growing our population because we know there's going to be massive dislocation because of changes to the climate, whether you think they're anthropomorphic of origin or just natural cycles. But um, whatever you view is the climate is changing and it's making it more difficult for various populations to survive in their current configuration. Mm -hmm. So if this country is to master its own destiny, Mm -hmm. we have to be prepared to find ways to grow it sustainably. And that's not retrofitting. Needed though it is, it's not retrofitting um, infrastructure to Sydney CBD. And I don't want to take anything away from what the New South Wales government's doing. It's absolutely essential. And, um, you know, thank God we've got a a visionary government doing it. But I think we have to go beyond that and we have to look at ways of creating sustainable communities beyond putting up more and more high-rise that are going to have cracks in the foundations, you know, out at Mascot. So a big part of population is dealing with uh, post-consumer items that, 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 that become obsolete. So we talked about iPhones, we talked about iPads, we deal with cars. Um I talked about putrescible waste. We've got to become much more effective in the way we feed ourselves. You get my 50 million people you're after. Yeah, exactly. Um, and we have to find new ways of, of of getting protein to population. But but this technology exists and you, you, you see that as the leading edge. We just have to have a little bit of imagination, have that investment, and I believe it'll pay uh, great dividends for uh, – for us if we become a leading edge technology country. And that means finding a way to migrate from high carbon technology to low carbon technology. And that means reusable to your earlier point or what does that mean? It's right across the spectrum. Um, if, uh, I mean, one of the great um, great innovations in the last 10 years is the um, development of the sharing economy. And that's a great example 
of having, you know, my car sits in its garage unused, you know, whether it's at the work garage or at the home garage, yes. unused most of the time. I actually don't need to own a car at that time. So if we can find technological answers to autonomous vehicles that are ubiquitous so that I can walk out of this uh, interview you know, with my app, hop in an autonomous car to go to my next appointment. Um, I don't need my own car here. Um, that's a good example of sharing. But it's also, uh, uh, there will always be um, consumer durable items that get to the end of their life. They're, they're either worn out or obsolete, you know, because of technological change. And the pace of technology change will make things obsolete. But we have to imagine how we are going to deal with that item when it's obsolete at the time of you know initial purchase so um by by can you paint, paint some pictures in my head so well I, I walk into a store and i go and buy a can or something or a bottle or something what's going to happen so to it then? so 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 at the moment um the the most effective container to recycle is aluminium so you're already seeing in um, North America now, you go to a ball game, you remember the, the, the red plastic cups? They've been replaced by uh, red aluminium cups um, that, um, that are totally recyclable rather than sort of going back to the plastic economy. Uh, that's one little example. I talked about the shopping bags, you know, yes. just, just reuse your shopping bags, you know, don't, don't, don't throw choose products that um, don't have as much packaging around them. You know, when I buy a new shirt, you know, I spend 20 minutes getting the pins and plastic out and, you know, how it's presented to me, you know, frankly, if there's one on a rack that I can choose and then, you know, there's an automated delivery, that's fine. You know, mm. I don't need the whole the whole box and dice. And, in fact, the logistics fulfilment economy is responsible for a lot of waste because there's a lot of packaging in there. So that's an issue we have to grapple with. Um, but I believe uh, Sims can be you know, right at the right a pivotal point in dealing with that sort of uh, that sort of challenge and that sort of problem. And Australia, do you think the Australian leadership or Australians in general have got the mindset to go with you on that journey? Um, look, I think I think it's necessary to paint a vision of the future and then explain the path to get there. But you can't just say, I've got this grand vision, let's go, because no one, you know, everyone will go in different directions. There's got to be uh, a focus, a framework, and that's where government policy plays an important role, but business also plays an important role by, by working with government to show uh, in a public policy sense what the solutions can be to these sorts of challenges. Jeff, on that really positive note, thank you for joining me today. It was great fun. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to No Limitations.